You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Fox and Faust. This week, Jimmy, we have a luxury. We have we get to talk to a general manager of a National Hockey League team. Rob Blake will join us in just a bit. Um, we get a chance to dive into a whole number of topics. But uh, what's top of mind for you this week as we start off our podcast? Well, I have to say, and many times when we do our podcast, we, we try to stay away from the Kings, you know, just from the standpoint of, we probably get a lot of that information in, during the games and on the air and things of that sort. So, you know, we touch on things, but uh, let's face it, you know, five in a row as we're taping, yeah. uh, you know, again, the way, because the, the power play has come alive and there was, you know, winning is winning, mm. but now the Kings, they're not outscoring their problems, but they're, they're outscoring. <laughs> they're still, yeah. That's something that's perhaps it's fun to win, but it's also fun to win when you're scoring. I, I think just the whole way that they've been playing has been fun. Um, you know, usually when we have a guest, uh, we'll string you along, chit chat for a little while, try to keep you tuned in for the whole hour. But let's cut to the chase here. Uh, we'll have Rob Blake on in just a few moments, general manager of the L.A. Kings. You know, we don't have a ton of time to to dive into to some topics on TV. And, and given the turnaround with the club, Jim, I, I find it interesting where the Kings are at right now. And, and you brought it up on TV the other day. I, I think the comment that w- we got from Todd McClellan uh, last week about batting order and where guys are at in the lineup and having balance. I just I keep coming back to that idea that for the first time in a couple of years, really, it feels like there's there's a right balance within the lineup and guys are playing where they should and and there's an identity and everybody knows their roles. I mean, it's it's early in the season still yet, right? You know, it, it's five games in a row, but we still got, you know, another third of the year yet. And yet I just still, I feel like there's finally a sense of, of identity with this team right now. I, I think the personnel turnover is is a big part of that. And we've discussed it. We have perhaps more positives to look forward to because of the prospect pool. But, uh, you know, there's different ways to win and the league has changed. The game has changed and you have to win more with speed. Now, Uh, you know, Stanley cup years, I remember, you know, Dwight King and Jordan Nolan coming up and they were adding more size and strength to a team that was already big and strong. Now uh, I mentioned it the other night, man, is it nice to have a bottom six forward who can go out there and put the other team back on their heels. We were talking about Athanasio at the time, but then, you know, even though an Austin Wagner doesn't finish as much as we want him to, but he's backing people off. You have Trevor Moore. He can skate, uh, you know, in the middle with Jared Anderson Dolan when he's healthy, uh, you know, Blake Lozotte. Now you have some guys that are buzzing around. So it's different. But once again, I think it's more fun to watch because mm. there's more skill involved. I was texting with uh, Joe Vitale, the former captain of my Northeastern University Huskies, now a radio analyst with the St. Louis Blues, because he was asking, what 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 happened here? What, what did we change? Like, they're playing well. Uh, he says, I think they're going to make the playoffs. It's still early to determine that. And and I, I gave him the example, not only a batting order, but I, I mentioned to him that this team can play in a variety of ways. They can grind. They can play up tempo. They can play with a little skill. They can smother in the neutral zone. Special teams are working. Goaltending is good. Like, you know, you're not going to win every game the rest of the way, but I, I I, see it. I enjoy the way they're winning in a variety of ways. Yeah, and, and I catch myself when I'm looking at standings and what do I expect? Um, you know, I'm just breaking down a roster. When sure. I'm looking at the pure roster, when I look at the Vegas Golden Knights, I'm looking at a highly skilled, fast, and big team at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, going to be tough to beat. Sure. Uh, Colorado, probably, their, their skilled forwards are all big, too. They, they fit into that category. Um, it's Austin Strand. He comes up and plays well, but you know what? There's not a spot for him. 
Yeah, he's a seventh only, defenseman. <laughs> yeah, there's only six guys in that batting order, right? To right. play every game. So now he's got to fight. But that's just, that's growing depth. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where you start to see it. Uh, Rasmus Kupari. I mean, he is now at the top. I know I know it's weird and it's tough, you know, scoring and how do you, you know, with the, the, the setup that they have going. I mean, they've had to adjust and uh, they've done a good job. They're playing. But, you know, he's at the top of the league in the American Hockey League. So that's, you know, he's just not leading Ontario. You know, he, he's near the top. So that's, and Tom McClellan brought it up the other day, like the, the flavor of the month, right? The new kids that are drafted, the Kalievs and the Turcots and all of these kids, you know, Byfield, they get all the pub because they're the newest, the most recent. Now, then you have a guy that Kupari was a pretty high pick himself. Mm-hmm. And now he's just, you know, coming off a knee injury, little experience, uh, you know, the depth is, is starting to build. And that's that's what makes me uh, more positive looking forward th- than it has. And, it, you know, it takes time. It takes yeah. time to get that depth. Yeah, we dive into uh, this and in, in a number of topics with Rob Blake. So without further ado, let's, let's dive right in. Here's our conversation with Rob Blake. Blakey, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, it's a pleasure to to chat with you, and uh, I know you got a busy schedule, so thanks for taking the time. First of all, yeah, no problem. Uh, glad to join you guys. We're you know when, as we're taping this, we're we're in a good place right now. I mean, team has won five straight. Um, you know, big picture wise, like you know, we're we're, we're in a good place. Uh, I, I feel like at least. What what's your assessment of where we're at right now? Well, I, I like the last few games. I think it's more of a complete game. Um, you know, we, we had tendencies early in the season. It wasn't a complete game, uh, you know, but I like, uh, you know, the, the just kind of the flow of, uh, you know, from the goaltenders to the defense to the forwards, uh, the, the movement of the puck, the, the execution of the system. And, and again, the power play has, uh, has gone up, uh, you know, dramatically from last year at the early in the season. Blakey, just, just from that first answer, uh, it appears to me that, of course, when you go into any game, you want to win the game, but you're looking for more of a trend overall thing along with the wins, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's what we had focused last year. And, and you saw it near the end of last season with the uh, with the structure and, and the way they were able to win games. You know, they relied heavily on, on goaltending always, um, structure in place, uh, and and offense off of volume of shooting. And I think we've continued to that. But again, I think a little bit more of the offense is focused around the power play production this year. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the execution of the system uh, has really come here the last couple of weeks. I'm going to take a step back and, you know, go 10,000 feet out. An NHL general manager in pandemic time what is the day in a life like right now? Uh, like, I feel like I'm having more meetings on Zoom than I ever had before. And this is just beyond whatever, uh, you know, beyond the regular day to day. Like, what is the daily grind like right now for you? Yeah, well, I, 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 obviously Zoom and uh, different meetings, everything virtual has, has come so far in the last few months and everybody gets comfortable with it. I think the common theme, and when I talk to other GMs and, and obviously with Todd talking here is um, just be ready for anything. Like mm-hmm. unexpected, like, uh, things can turn in, in a day with, uh, with uh, you know, with, with COVID and the different protocols in place, you could wake up in the morning and, and all of a sudden have five or six guys in a protocol um, test wise to see, uh, you know, so you have to be able to adjust. Uh, we've had to adjust meeting times, um, uh, schedules of buses, uh, how the meals are prepared, where the guys eat, what, what they do on the road, everything. But um, I, I think the biggest uh, compliment probably is the NHL and the NHLPA together uh, really educated the players prior to this. And, and maybe from some knowledge from the, uh, the bubble last year in the playoffs, but the players have been prepared for anything like anything you throw at them. They're like, okay, this is what we got to do and move forward. Um, so, you know, you, you, they've come a long way in that, but again, it's, it's ever changing almost daily. What about you? Is there a moment where you've kind of, or, or do you have a, a daily kind of anxiety of, you know, where we're at right now in a pandemic, like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I know we had a, a couple guys on, on COVID list, like, 
What is that like to have to manage that? Yeah, and kind of the way the testing is right now. So, so the players come in, they test in the morning between seven and nine, and uh, usually you don't get those results till five or six at night. Now they're also doing point of care testing, which you get uh, a little quicker. But early in the season, you basically waited around five or six at night and hoped that Chris Kingsley didn't call with a negative test because mm-hmm. all of a sudden contact tracing comes in and you could pull five to nine players out of your lineup in a heartbeat. It happened to us in Minnesota. Uh, Finneseo tested positive uh, from a morning uh, test, but he tested positive at night. He's out of the lineup. Nine guys are out of the morning skate while we're waiting to see if they're going to be cleared to play. Um, so, you, you know, that, that, that kind of, uh, part we never had to deal with. And, and, and now you, you factor that in with the taxi squad and the different rosters. So there's a lot of juggling every day with that. But if I can, like something that maybe has been thrown at you, it's been thrown at the rest of the league. And just because of the stage that the Kings are in maybe better prepared, but what is it like managing a flat cap? Because we talk about cap management all the time, then all of a sudden the economics are hurt by COVID and now the cap has to remain the same. Yeah, and, and I think prior to that, we always figured on uh, anywhere between 2 to 3% increase. So anytime you looked at uh, your roster, where you wanted to get to next year, possible re-signings or free agents, you always factored that increase. Now, now you're doing it flat. Uh, in retrospect, where we are with our situation, it, it probably works out fine for us. Um, where we've had to, uh, you know, kind of shed a lot of that contract and, and, and cap situation. So, um, but going forward, you 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 definitely need to be prepared for it and, and plan. Um, where we where we're doing a lot of planning is is where are kids coming out of entry levels you know, and, and, and what kind of contracts would they be looking at and, in different terms. So you're trying to manage, uh, uh, you know, two or three years out to see which kids will come out of entry level uh, based off of their success, what kind of contracts and, and, and factor in your cap into that. How many categories do you have like that, Blakey, meaning entry level contract? And then is there, is there like a, you know, the second contract or, or, or are there age categories where you kind of group guys together based on age? Well, I, I think it's more right now, probably contract. If we looked at the age aspect, we've got the five veterans, right? You know, with Kopi and uh, and Drew and their and their contracts long term, you kind of know where they sit. Um, you know, with Jeff and, and and Dustin and Quick, you kind of know their contracts. And then you've got your secondary group with Iafalo and Kempi. Um, you know, you understand those. And but the ones I talk more about probably are the the more the entry level, the guys just coming in. Um, and, and where they project to be, uh, you know, you have to kind of project out where, how they're going to play and, and, and what level of contract you think you'll be looking at going forward. If I can go one more in the same area, guys, uh, you know, there's no question your plan has been to stockpile assets, younger players. That's part of the transition phase the Kings were in. Is it possible to put a, a timeline on that? Meaning, you know, when do you group some guys together? When do you package some guys together? Will the younger guys be at their prime? And where will Kopitar and Carter and Quick and Dowdy and Brown be at that? that whole? I know it's a tough question, but do you have timelines for that? Yeah, and, and and exactly what you're looking at. I, I think where it becomes more noticeable right now is that um, all of a sudden we we inserted probably, I think it was eight, eight or nine players, first-year players into the American League this year. So, you know, those, those assets and those draft picks that we acquired over the last couple of years, the first round of, of them are actually starting to play pro. And, and the ones that have a year in, under them, uh, Mikey Anderson, Toby Bjornfoot, uh, Jared Anderson, Dolan, uh, Grunstrom being acquired but a year in our American League. Now, now you're seeing them in the NHL. And, and, and But they've had that year of American League experience. The second wave uh, and a lot of the prospects and picks that uh, were acquired in those deals are just getting started in pro. And then there's another layer even past that. So, um, yeah, we start to see it, but you start to put a little bit more reality because they are playing uh, professional hockey now. So you get to judge them against the American League. After a year, you get to judge them into the NHL. There are a lot of young guys who have made their way into the lineup. And I cannot tell you how many fans have come up to us either in person or on social media and said, well, we got to play the kids. Where are the kids? Why, why aren't they in the lineup? And, and lo and behold, again, this is going back to last year. Lo and behold, one by one, they've made their way in. Kind of, I guess you sort of answered this already, but in terms of a long-term plan with 
prospects. And we know how highly rated um, our, our minor league system and our, our prospect pool is. Is it almost a good problem to have at this point of that you, you've got all these kids at some point you've got to work their way in at some point they've got to follow that development path? Yeah, and I think the difference was the the amount that turned pro this year, that started pro this year. And, and when you look at the Ontario reign, I think it's uh, seven first-year forwards in, in, in up front out of 12. So, um, you know, you like to supply a lot of veterans around there, but but we didn't have that ability with the number of, of players turning pro. Um, you know, but the, but they'll get their experience and they'll, and they'll come forward from there. Um, you know, but it, it is nice to be able to see them what they did in the American League, and then take that next step. So I, I mentioned those three: Mikey Anderson and Toby on the on the back end for sure, and uh, Jared Anderson Dolan being able to take their game, what they did in the American League, and, and start to transfer it every day in the NHL. Austin Strand, um, you know, was a surprise coming out of camp, but being able to do the same thing, um, and and you know maybe not as young of them, but uh, Cal Peterson. You know, you know, there was a plan to, to play a certain amount in the American League. Now start working your way into the NHL and get your games there, too. Right. When you look at the entire King system. Is there a position that you would say you're deepest in? Uh, probably centerman. Uh, you know, we've got some playing out of position, even in the American League. Uh, Tyler Madden has played on the wing for the majority of it. Uh, uh, you know, Kapari with, with Kapari, Turcott, Byfield, um, you know, it's a, it's a deep, deep middle there. Um, but th there is the ability for those to play wing. You don't see a lot of wingers move to center, you, but you do see centermen move to wing at different times. But I, I think if you just did strictly positional, um, I would say centermen is probably the depth. And, and to that end, I, I wonder, and maybe this is just a reach on my end, but you know the rule changed recently where teams have the ability on an end zone faceoff to pick which side after an icing. Let's say um, I, I noticed last year, especially Carts. You know he's on the wing now, but you know he played so many years at center that okay he can take a faceoff and you, and you don't worry about it. We're so deep in that position. I wonder is it just a, a byproduct of hey, we can draft a centerman. We don't necessarily have to keep him that way, but it's nice luxury to have. Right. I, I think the ability to move him to the wing and, and knowing that that may be it. Also in the draft, it kind of falls in that situation. I probably should have put Gabe Velarde in that uh, group. Uh, for some reason, I consider him a veteran, even though it's his really first year <laughs> in the NHL. Um, you know, but uh, but yeah, they they have that. The other thing, Todd, too, especially penalty kill, he likes to have uh, center, uh, both both being able to take center, uh, take faceoffs and different things. So you'll see in the American League, we'll have uh, Tyler Madden take draws, even if he's lined up on wing and different things, just so that when they make that transition and they get in, uh, there's nothing that's going to hold them back. So they, they can be in a situation where, okay, if you have to take a draw, you have to do it. Look, if I, if I'm going to, I'm going to go back now, if I can. Um, 1988, you're drafted by the Kings. I'll share a story with you. I don't know if I've shared it with you before. About a week after you were joined the Kings, uh, Wayne Gretz pulls me aside and he says, watch this Blake kid. Like, we didn't know a lot about you again. You know, you know coming out of college, we don't have as much scouting there. But, but my purpose to that is, of course, you know, you're kind of living in Manhattan Beach, but then you're, you meet Brandy you get married, you have a family, you're still, now you're GM of the team. Did you ever think back then that you would be a general manager and a general manager of the Kings? Well, when we sat in the steamer after practice and traded half our team, we all thought we were general managers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Then you get to this position. It's not as easy as you thought it might be. So, um, no, I, I don't know. I have always enjoyed uh, the the aspect. Even I, I think as my career went on and you get to the second half or the the, the back half of your career, I always felt uh, making that transition into management was something I wanted to do. I didn't, didn't exactly know how or where it would come in, but uh, no, it's been special that way to, to be able to start here, to, to be able to come back in, into this situation. Um, the other nice thing is, is working with Luke too, uh, you know, being able to play with him, understand him as a player. Uh, we went through a lot of different situations there, but we're going through them the same thing uh, together again. But I think the same vision and, and plan to, uh, you know, we were, the Kings were able to have that success and, and be able to have those Stanley Cups. And now, now once you, you, you want to get back to that level and you want to be competitive and you want to do it for the players that are coming in. 
I was joking before we started this yeah. that uh, there's a there's a Bowling Green mafia running the <laughs> NHL right now between McClellan and McPhee and you and like do, do you lean on those guys at all? I mean, it's it's kind of a fun club, I guess, to have alumni from the same school. Yeah, no, you do when you when you see them on the road or in different situations and you talk to them and that. But it's just probably that high level education out of Bowling Green, I think. Oh, <laughs> don't get me started on college hockey. Well, on. certainly. A much much higher rated scholastic institute than say Northeastern University or someone like that. <laughs> Blakey, now now that I know I have experience as a general manager in some of those meetings after practice or before you go to bed after playing a game on the road and you're trying to talk, man, I didn't know I could I could jump right in there. Yeah, we'd sit at the back of the bus and we yeah. all want to run a team when when we were 25 years old. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. <laughs> There is uh there is an aspect to running a team and being accountable for for everything that goes on. Um, what what keeps you up at night when, when you're the general manager of a team? Uh, pretty much everything. It, hmm. the, the difference, uh, the biggest difference. So when, when it was assistant general manager, um, you, you supplied ideas, you sat in the day to day. But when you actually drove home at night and said you really didn't have the final decision. So so you woke up the next morning to see what happened. As soon as you become the GM, everything hinges on that, all the decisions. And and now you got to manage uh, many different departments, not just the players in that. So um, the biggest benefit I think you know in my short term doing this is the time off we had because of the COVID situation because I really got to look at the staff structure um, the, the culture that we wanted to imply on a day-to-day work for the last couple of years you get so enthralled just in the team and trying to get things that you didn't I didn't have the whole view of it and I, I think now the hockey was set aside for seven or eight months and we really got to focus on the organization and uh, reshape what we wanted to build here. It kind of goes coincides with what you want to do with the team. You know, that's the balancing Blakey. And I know you've kind of touched on it in this entire interview, but Ontario wins and losses to start the season. I know development is number one priority, but when do those losses become a concern? You know, they they do right now. You, you don't want to lose many. You want the, the, the kids to have that grasp and, and be competitive. Um, you know, so we're looking at some things there. Uh, you know, one of them was was the goaltending. We understood Matty Valta had only played, I think, 22 games last year or something. So we want to surround him with a veteran. So, we uh, you know, Rich Seeley and Glenn Murray kind of operate Ontario in offseason, signed Troy Grosnick. But as it turns out, we lose him on waivers with an injury to Edmonton. Uh, we reacquire him. But now you got the taxi qu- uh, squad situation, and he's on the taxi squad. So he hasn't even been available to Ontario. Right. Man. Uh, you know, we had Mark Ald as a veteran defense. We had him up early this year. Like Kapari just joins the team on this road trip. It takes him out of three games in Ontario, but uh, a taxi squad in the NHL. So we've had to juggle a little bit around there. Um, the other unique situation was a, a lot of times when you when you look at your American League, you, you know you have two or three young kids coming in. You surround them with really good veterans, right? So we've had Brett Sutter for a long time. He's been terrific. But like I said, we brought in seven first-year forwards plus Kapari, who missed last year with an ACL. So, so you've got basically eight forwards, um, but you want them playing in key situations. So I was at the game the other night. We had a five on three. The five forwards they put out there were first-year guys. So great situation, but there is a learning curve to the American League. Uh, getting banged around by bigger, heavier players, stronger players, um, and also learning a, a defensive structure, probably a structure that they may not have – they may have got away with in junior or college because they were top players. And hey, listen, you go out, you got two minute shift, you can do what you want, you're going to score. Now you got to come and play in this structure to have success. So all that learning curve um, isn't to be unexpected. Um, but yeah, we we look at it and I like the style they want to play. Uh, you would like to get a little more results, but I think we want to focus a lot on that process and and really look at the 2030 game mark. Where where are these kids getting to? Because right now they're all playing valuable minutes in, in 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 key situations, which we like. Is there an aspect to this season? And and you know, not to to rag too much on kind of where the American Hockey League is right now, just given the. COVID situation and the economics of it all, is there an aspect to this season that more so than others, it feels more like a developmental year rather than, you know, fielding a team that is, you know, maybe eminently focused on wins and losses. And you want to have those, obviously. 
but yeah. but give, you know, we're playing at the practice facility there are no fans um you know there there aren't a lot of veterans on the team like and it, it just has that sense of it's kind of a gap year almost yeah and and we also included a a whole development program off ice so Mm. so a lot of the kids that we're getting now like i said we're either a junior college or from europe but they're used to getting the rink at 9 10 in the morning and spending the whole day there and uh, so we've we've added that in today is a development day here so our development guys are on the ice working on skills then they have classrooms after where it could be either nutrition mental skills uh you know, uh, Matt Green's doing a lot with leadership, culture, and intangibles. So they're, they're almost having a class, classroom setting in the afternoons involving this stuff. So we've taken that and understanding that 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 was kind of the focus this year. And you're right, being at the practice rink is different, playing all the games here. It's a it's a whole different scenario, but we've taken that next step of, of development, not only on ice skills, but to what it really means to be a pro going forward. That's fascinating. And Jim, you you and I have talked a lot about the uh, the mental coaches and having. Uh, I know the, the Kings have one on staff now of a uh, a sports psychologist, if you will. We've heard from players that it's been incredibly helpful. I think Matt Luff cited it in the off season of, of being able to work one on one with somebody. I mean, from when you were playing to now, it seems like there's been a complete. 180 in terms of attitude shift from players and even management on the utility of having a position like this within an organization. Yeah. And I think so. And I think a lot of the time the kids you're getting now are used to this and they expect it at this level. So, um, you know, even during this pause, we really went to work on uh, uh, mental, uh, mental skills workshops in the off season where we divided the, uh, our teams up into probably groups of eight to 10 players and they did everything virtual, but you know, anywhere from, uh, preparation routine to motivation to all these different factors that just help educate and allow the players to become more intelligent towards the game of hockey and a, a lot of it's focused on on what it takes to be a pro every day I mean we they're they're real fortunate when they come to the rink every day especially in the NHL that they've got these five veterans here a, a lot of teams will uh you know, in a, in a process similar to this, have to go and acquire a veteran. And, and when you do, and you, you want to acquire somebody that's won before. Well, we had them sitting right here, right? So you had Dustin Brown, you had Kopitar, Quick, Carter, Dowdy. I mean, and, and they and they're so good at wanting to be challenged. And, and Todd came in last year and challenged them right away that this is the way we're going to play. We need you guys to buy in. And now you're seeing that out of them. Um, but. But then you can add in a, a Velarde every day to sit beside Kopitar to watch Kopitar and, and, and Mikey Anderson and Toby Bornfort to watch uh, Drew Doughty or Cal Peterson to watch Jonathan Quick. I mean, you, you can't teach that. No matter what classrooms we want to do after or, or, or seminars, the day-to-day ritual of it is so valuable. And uh, we're so fortunate that those veterans have bought in and, and are doing whatever they can to, to help our team get better. It's going to help those kids too. I've got one more for you here, Rob, and, and then uh, we'll let you go. Because right? I've, I've asked this of a lot of different people around hockey and kind of around our lives, really. Is there anything from this pandemic experience that you would keep going forward? And there are so many negatives, right? But I think we're finding positives that we can take out of it. Is there something in your daily life even that you would keep? Well, yeah, I mean, especially the biggest thing is these virtual meetings, like connection with your staff. We So we have amateur scouts and pro scouts, but you really only saw them at amateur meetings or, you know, once or twice a year and then around the draft or your pro scouts because everybody's going all different ways. The communication between our staff has come so far in the last six months because of the virtual settings and no one's afraid of it anymore. So, you know, uh, we do a player performance uh, meeting every other week where we list all our players. We have all the department heads that are involved in the players performance on together and we just communicate virtually now. We wouldn't have done that before. You would have had to do it separately and everything. So some of that will we take and we'll go forward. And and I I see the players adapting now too. Like a, you know, a funny thing like bus times. Guys used to come three four hours before. Well, they mandated an hour and forty five minutes before. So now you're down to one bus. But but I think guys are going to stick by some of this. You know, um, no one likes change, but when it's enforced on you, and all of a sudden you get in, you're like, hey, it's not too bad. So um, yeah, we. You know, we, we kind of had that model right from day one. Listen, we know we're in this 
this situation. We don't know when it's going to, but let, let's make the most of it. And, and I do think communication staff wise um, was a real big help through this. You know, like you, Alex actually brought this up to me, but it's kind of into what you're talking. Is there been any discussion at all to keep the two game series oh, into the future? I think so. Look at the travel. It is oh. so much better. I mean, please, please, Blakey, please make this a reality. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think the players really enjoy it. I, I know I was on the first trip and uh, it, it was, you know, what was it, four games? We had three flights. Uh-huh. Usually that's seven and and you're getting in late at two in the morning and some of these and playing it, it just uh it makes way more sense travel wise wear and tear wise now i i'm not so sure on the ticket sales and, and things mm-hmm. right now everybody's in the same boat with no fans so it's not too bad but uh it, it, it sure i think the players sure like it and and i know we do uh mainly based off of the travel and and now you get to actually set up for a few days and Jimmy, didn't you do that? Like, wasn't that with Winnipeg? Early? We did Winnipeg. Yeah, that was the only one. Right. But even if they didn't go to the whole schedule that way, you know, if they really went to, uh, you know, I think say twenty five percent of the schedule where they make the, you know, the yep. two game series, that would just, especially yep. West Coast teams. I, I know it's much easier now with yep. charters and things of that sort. But I'm still a big believer that the West Coast teams still have a. Yeah. a hump to overcome when it comes to travel. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds this year and where players stand on it. But my, the, the early feedback is uh, I, I think they enjoy it, you know? So. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, it becomes reality. I've been advocating for that since I, since I got here, cause I just looked at the schedule and said like, why are we doing this? But any yeah. event, uh, Rob, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Uh, really appreciate the deep dive as well. No, no problem, guys. Good to talk to you. Well, that was a treat to get a solid half hour with uh, with Blakey and um, kind of get the full spectrum, right? You know, talking about the lineup today, the situation with the AHL, COVID. What was your or one of your takeaways from from that in, interview we just did? You know, I'll be completely honest with you, and it is because I'm never completely honest with you. Uh, <laughs> When he started discussing the mental coaches and seminars and leadership thing groups and seminars that they go through, that that caught my attention. That is a comprehensive approach. It is providing your athletes with the tools necessary to improve. And yeah. that caught my attention. You know, it's interesting too, because right now the mandate from the NHL and the AHL is essentially go to the rink go home, go nowhere else. So you have a lot of hours of the day uh, to, to fill that otherwise might have been used for team bonding or when you're on the road to, to have something of that nature. Um, not that you know we're going to theme parks and having fun activities like that. This isn't summer camp. But having a structure to the day of, of putting in seminars, I, I mean, maybe this has been in place and I've just never heard it, but I've never heard of that before to have – leadership seminar later on in the day or to or to have structured time on the calendar with a mental performance coach i mean this is all relatively new stuff it used to be just you get thrown in you figure it out kid like this this is you know the pros you figure it out and i think they still do have to figure out alex but now they have kind of a template right yeah they have a structure a textbook theory is rarely the most important thing. And I don't think it's the most important thing here. The application of it is. But now they they might be sitting in one of those going, oh, okay. Yeah, if I'm in the locker room and my partner just had a boo-boo and he, he coughed it up and, you know, what can I do to help him? What can, how, how, can I re- how can I help him rebound? Because when he rebounds, it helps the team rebound. And it just, it gets you probably thinking about your teammates more than just thinking about yourself. I would just think about the glare that Matt Green would give, and I just don't want to get that. You know, those those eyes looking at me like, mm, no, not gonna, not gonna make that mistake again. <laughs> That'd be problematic. Um, all right, okay, we we have a little bit of time here. Uh, let, let's do a quick around the league uh, with, a, with a couple of topics. Uh, first things first, outdoor games this weekend, um, Lake Tahoe. We we talked about it going into the weekend a little bit um, with the inspiration for the weekend. Didn't go according to plan for the National Hockey League, but sometimes through mistakes, you stumble upon genius. And I I wonder if the NHL would be willing to try this again 
now knowing that you can't do an outdoor game in the middle of the day with bright sunshine at 6,600 feet above sea level, uh, what, what was your reaction to the weekend? And uh, and then I want to I want to pick your brain about like other outdoor venues yeah. potentially. I think I think everything was fine. I think they they knew in the back of their mind of the possibility. This is what was happening to me, and. You know what? For years and years and years and years and years and years and years, the NHL has been criticized for being conservative. They went for the home run. Okay. They went for that prime time, sun out, but not hot enough to melt the ice. But then you get the blue sky and you get the mountains, you get the trees, you go for the home run. And they fouled it off a little bit. But they went for, I like that. Now they'll learn. Now, next time, will they go for the home run? Maybe not. Maybe adjustments of, you know, starting times and maybe, you know, the lighting at night, being able to put lights on both sides of the rink as opposed to just one side because, you know, one side's backed up to a lake and you can't really, you know, all those types of things. But uh, I have no problem. Go for the home run. Go for it. And uh, then I saw the night game and, you know, when the sun was just going down and, I think the camera shots were, you know, I said to my wife, we were watching with uh, on TV, and I said, I said, I can't believe I played in this league. I wish I, I wish I would have been able to play a game like that. Oh. And I'm not sentimental at all. Uh, it just hit me like, wow. Yeah. I would have loved to have played in that game. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy. I, and honestly, it, what I was alluding to is just what you're talking about. Like, if they had from the beginning had a start time that was a little later in the day, right? It was the sun's going down, they would have looked like geniuses. And they would, like, can you imagine the praise for the NHL? Yeah, okay, they got they got a little egg on their face from, from you know, having the ice melting. Okay, that's, that's understandable. But um, honestly, I, I think in terms of every other... Um, you know, box they wanted to tick. And it wasn't just TV ratings. It was, we want to generate buzz and social attention. And I cannot tell you, just looking at social media, how many people were just in awe of the scene. Um, it's the first time they tried anything like this in a setting like that. You've, you've yeah. talked to me in the past about, um, you know, Kings especially like to be kind of aggressive in, in that respect. And, you know, what, what are some other places you think, um, even like just from be, our perspective? I'd like to be environmentally conscious, okay. which means I'd like to save money on gas, which means I'd like to have the game at the pier in Manhattan Beach. <laughs> this is something that you you mentioned that this is you've kicked uh, this around as an you idea. You know, it's been discussed. It's been taught. I, I hate to say that, don't you? When you hear yourself say that. But I think I brought it up way before anyone else did. Because I used to be a huge fan, like many people, of, well, the Manhattan Beach Open in volleyball and how they could build temporary bleachers and house, you know, 15,000 people in the bleachers, another 10 to 15,000 around. And then when you talk about the entire area, you're talking 75,000, you know, just all around that area. And I think, uh, that would be where I would do it. Uh, you know, again, now you're, you're running into a lot of issues with weather because fog, maybe, uh, you know, a little sprinkle here and there. But, you know, that's, again, you're going to go for the home run or not. And I think uh, I think you could do it. it it's, it's like Lake Tahoe, although with the, you know, temporary bleachers, I think you can put, you can put probably – around 15 to 20,000 people in that area. And we know that the, the impact, yes, the Dodger stadium game, you can get 60,000 at Dodger stadium, Kings and Ducks fans. But I think what Lake Tahoe showed, it is not just about necessarily making a profit, which the outdoor games do regardless of whether TV ratings are declining or not. The the outdoor games are still wildly profitable for the NHL, Uh, not necessarily for the teams, for the league, because the league organizes the whole thing. If you had 15,000 people there and you had more of an impact in the community. Like LA is going to be buzzing because there's a hockey game on the beach and all the, you know, the local TV stations that may not cover every single game. You better believe they're going to be down there giving attention to the team, giving attention to the sport in Southern California. 
the biggest obstacle having lived in the beach areas would be the the city having to shut down that area for yeah, at no, least a true. week yeah. uh, hey, the beach you know, life festival uh, what is it yeah. uh, hermosa and that right? happens in that. the summer like if you if you plan it for the winter i i think the beaches themselves aren't as necessarily busy as all of the traffic that yeah. it would entail to get all of the machinery down there but again they do it for a manhattan open so uh, in volleyball, so you you kind of do it, but then you would have to really lock it down for sure. for a week, right? Hey, streets of Long Beach Grand Prix, yeah. So that happens. It's just something that I, I know from experience down here on the beaches that, and rightly so, I'm sure they the residents, uh, you know, don't necessarily. Not in my backyard. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, I guess if I had your money and was able to buy a twelve <laughs> oh, million sure. dollar house. Sure. on the beach then i would you know i wouldn't want to live there for 365 days a year and not uh, have to move out every once in a while my, my condo is is just fine thank you very much uh two other topics i want to get to one is uh you know a, kind of a developing story we'll see where it goes uh, in the next couple of days and weeks uh, and i bring it up because you you have experience with um kind of the international nature of the sport it was artemi panarin and, uh, you know, this report out about, um, you know, potential uh, uh, assault years ago when he was playing in the KHL and then the revelation it might be politically motivated. Um, yeah, just a brief thought here, if, if you will. And, and I know you've traveled to Russia a couple times and uh, especially with the world championships in uh, in the, the 80s, your experience with, you know, just how how careful you have to be and how it seems yeah. like everything winds up being political different times i mean when i visited it was communist russia so that was 86 for the world championships and, and it was it was a shock it was a complete shock to my system and uh you know that's that that's a whole other podcast that we can get into one day uh i'm the angelo situation I heard, you've heard, you've read, had some political underrunnings. Uh, now the Panarin completely separated, meaning, you know, Russia. It's geopolitical. Where, it, it yeah, ain't it's, domestic, it's, where, it's geopolitical. Yeah, this one's originating <laughs> out of there. Yeah. This is what has to be done. The Rangers and Panarin have to do what they just did. I don't know. We don't know. No one knows the facts yet. But because of how serious the allegation is, you have to take a break. Whether it's a team suspension, which this is not, this, as it's being communicated to us at this time, it's Panarin saying, uh, because of the seriousness nature, he has to take a step back because, you know, I, I'm sure his focus just would not be on the games. But we have to also look at the other side and the seriousness of the allegation of violence against another woman and if that we just hope facts come out it's a bunch of political bs and it doesn't have any fact as far as what happened as far as the interaction between arteria and the young lady that's been you know pointed out uh, you do you do get the feeling though right alex that there's something you know just Man, it just, if it is politically motivated and they're using this, if it's not true, man, that's, that's, it's not as serious as if it did happen, but tell, you know, that's crying wolf. If, if you're using that now. Well, it, it has geopolitical implications yeah. for players coming from Russia oh, to the National Hockey League. That again, I, I think yeah. goes way beyond whatever we could cover in a couple they, minutes. They've here. already that grouped is them, a right? Big deal. They've already grouped them. They've already said, "Okay, this guy yeah. supports Putin. This guy supports Putin." They've held right. the fundraisers, and, and these guys don't. Man, that's that's mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's. I don't It'll know. Is that is this the first of that type of thing that I've heard in any sport, like political, political in nature, like you know. I mean, at least in the NHL, at least in North yeah. American sports. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it happens with international athletes, um, you know, in Olympic sports or, or maybe, you know, in leagues in Europe. But I can't recall anything like that, yeah. re at least recently. Um, yeah. I mean, in the North 68 American Olympics, professional sports, yeah. you know, the 68 Olympics the sure. protest. And, and, sure. that, and that was certainly 
even beyond that boycotts in the 80s yeah, right yeah. like I, I can't recall anything since then that's kind of crossed over but like political lines like that and, and you're you're potentially talking about pitting players on the same team against each other mm-hmm. depending on their thoughts on who should be leading a certain country it's a fascinating that's story tough. Tough. yeah there there's we're just at the start of it really yeah. it feels like uh, and then one other thing that, that came up last week, um, article in The Athletic that generated a lot of buzz from Ken Dryden, who we know is can be a little bit long-winded at times, but had a, presented a very, um, a very strong case for change in the National Hockey League where he wants to expand the nets. And we've heard this talk before. I don't know if I've heard it quite in the in the same detailed way that he laid out like <laughs> no, this. No, you haven't. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, I'm sure detailed. it's been made, but uh, and I'm sure he's done it in the past. But uh, I don't know. What's your what's your general impression of reading about this this week? The Nick Nixon rule. Yeah, <laughs> he's been talking about this. A he's lot, been talking about it for a good, uh, you know, at least ten years, if not fifteen years. Of just you know what, make the nets bigger now. I'm seeing more, and it, 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 it coincides with the crackdown on the equipment, which there's a lot of goaltenders, especially ex-goaltenders, who feel they can do even more. But I'm seeing the seven-hole goals that go in that just were not going in before. I'm seeing, we were talking high short side, where you know Ken Dryden talks about where a goaltender just basically on his knees takes away almost the entire net. Well, now... You know, they've, they've contoured the, the, the chest protector and the arm protector a little bit more to the body. Uh, he did bring up a good point in the article of uh, Vasilevsky and how when you have a loose, uh, we call it belly protector, that when it hits your pants, it rides up. That means the shoulders ride up and all mm. of a sudden, you're, you know, another two to three inches are being protected and you really haven't changed the size of the equipment, right? It just moves more. Uh, but uh, I... I th- the speed of the game to me is more of a concern and the fact that it might be getting too fast than goaltenders equipment. Hmm. Five years ago, I would say the opposite. Now I think to me, goaltenders equipment are a little bit more on the back burner. And uh, for that reason, I would never ever, when Nick brought that up to me, whenever it was ago, I, I, I looked him in the eyes and Nick, you're, you're way out in space here. <laughs> and you know what? Now he's not. Yeah. He really isn't. It, it's, it's, a, it's, I am starting to consider that. And that's the only time I've jumped. Bobby Orr is my favorite player of all time. And the only time I, st- when Nick Lidstrom retired, I said, you know what? He's pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wasn't cons- ever considering it before. Well, I was never considering making the nets bigger before, and now I can kind of, I don't think we need to, but I can consider it now. Yeah, I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, it's scoring is up. Save percentage this year is the lowest it's been in 13 years. You're right in that the speed of the game, and you've made a compelling argument about this too, that the speed of the game and just in terms of safety even, um, you know, can is just mind-blowing right now, but... I don't know. I, I don't know about expanding the size of the nets. I, I think part of the uh, appeal, part of the joy of watching a National Hockey League game is the degree of difficulty. And when a goal is scored, uh, the euphoria involved, especially when we've seen just the incredible playmaking from the McDavid's and the Matthews of the world. Um, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, uh, you know, we, we should celebrate that. And and when we when scoring expands, let's say we go back to the the '80s model, and again, goaltending was different then too. But when a game is you know eight to six, is it as special when a goal is scored anymore? Does it matter as much? I mean, I don't want this to yeah, become oh, yeah. cross. When I get my hat trick, it's special. That's what it <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your oh, yeah. hat trick once a week. You yeah. Know? It, the thing I'm thinking about now is I still think there's a ways to go in new modern material technology. Mm. So for instance, you know, a bulletproof vest type of thing where you can manufacture protection that is unquestioned. The goaltender will be protected at the same time, smaller and lighter. And I think that 
that may be the next step where they've already taken that step. But if they go a little further, maybe, again, they accomplish things where they open up another. And if they open up another three or four inches in the net, yeah, that that's enough. That's yeah. enough for deflections to all of a sudden go in instead of hitting a shoulder. Uh, that's enough. Shrink the pads another half inch, another mm -hmm. inch here or there. I, I I have two words for you, though, on that. Carbon fiber. Yeah, At some point, there is going to be a, a composite material that, in, that has some sort of carbon fiber component that'll yeah. be lighter than ever before, and it'll be more protective than ever before. I mean, you think about a Formula One race car, right? They are built with, you know, the, a chassis that has so much more carbon fiber than it did however many years ago. Um, and they are safer than they've ever been. I, I look at that and say shin guards or skate guards or, you know, a chest protector, like, or even a helmet. Like what, why aren't components of that being wow. involved just yet? I have a feeling that's the next thing on yeah. the horizon. And then they ha those have to become affordable too then. Yeah, you know? of course. Well, it, it's been a, a good conversation. I'm glad we had a chance to, to chat with the, uh, with Rob Blake earlier. Uh, Jim, any, any final thoughts here before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, uh, keep the happy train going. <laughs> uh, you know, Adrian Kempe kind of used that phrase. And, you know, that's, again, just back to the Kings. Again, our, my expectations, I don't know if they've moved that much. Mentioned it a couple of times on the air. I think Todd McClellan's teams historically will be good on the power play. That's just one of his strengths. We're seeing that now. Uh, but... Just, just keep it. I'm not changing my expectations, meaning the same thing we started the season. If the Kings make the playoffs, I won't be surprised. If they don't make the playoffs, I'm not going to be surprised. They're kind of in that mm -hmm. interim area. So I'm not leaping to any tops of any mountains right now, but uh, it's, it's pleasant to see some layers developing mm -hmm. that may be there for a while. And hey, as long as they're competing. You know, that's, that's all you want is just to be at least right now, at least to be in the mix. And then if you make the playoffs, who knows, but got to get there first, still a long way to go. Still about only a third of the way through the season. Uh, but nonetheless, the Kings are playing really well. Uh, thanks again to our uh, producer, Jesse Cohen producer on Fox sports West, uh, Marcus Ortiz, uh, who uh, put together some of the video component of this. If you like the podcast, if you want to get them de delivered straight to uh, your, your inbox, your app, uh, hit the subscribe button in uh, your uh, podcast app of choice. And we will see you next week for another edition of Fox and Faust, the podcast. Mm -hmm.